0: Hello, and welcome to the World We Live In podcast. I'm your host, Eric Patterson. Alongside me is Kyle Malden. Join us as we explore the amazing, mysterious aspects of our planet's cultures, history, and future trends. Hey, everyone, what's going on? Glad you're with us. I'm glad to be here. Um, Today, I am doing another solo episode. So I'm by myself on a wonderful... Cool Saturday morning in the South. Um, I just went to my first Halloween party last night. So if you're listening to this, um, it's about that time. It's about that time. I went as Marty McFly from Back to the Future and uh, I pulled it off pretty well. I did. I was impressed. I'm not usually a Halloween costume type of guy, but it worked. It worked pretty well. So we did that. Um, I, think I have one or two more. And uh, I might repeat a costume, because with different people, different party, different people, um, or might do, uh, might try and do some stuff with some friends, but it's a good time of year. It's, um, the weather's cooling down, went to Octoberfest in Nashville uh, last weekend, uh I guess that would have been the 12th or whatever, 11th, whatever. Sometime around then. I uh, saw some wiener dog races. Um, I don't know if I've talked about this much on the podcast, but I grew up with wiener dogs. and that So that was super fun. We uh, There were like 150 wiener dogs racing. All different uh, age groups and type of dogs. Actually, I think it was just type of dogs. And then there was one group of just like older wiener dogs. Which was, which is funny to see, because the we I grew up with sisters and we had and one has passed away but one is still kicking and she's fifteen, so it's still kind of crazy to think about. I never thought I have a dog that'd be that old, but yeah, she's still kicking, still barks at everything, so classic dog. Um, but yeah, so I have to dedicate this episode to one of my best friends and my longest friend um you know who you are um no need to share names here but um yeah man he is well first off i'm proud of you man um he's making a big boy move out to Boise Idaho so this episode is going to be all about Idaho and some of the cool stuff there some of the history and um yeah just an episode dedicated to, to you, man. Congrats. And yeah, we'll get into it. And uh Idaho's a weirdly placed state because it like if if you if you're familiar with what Idaho looks like, it's got like that big base, but then it like narrows up and crevices in between Montana and Oregon, I believe. Or Washington State maybe more. Well, I guess both, but up towards the top, Washington State. And then you got Canada. So, yeah, it's a, one of the weirdly shaped states, especially out west, because a lot of them are square, obviously. The Colorados, Wyomings, Utahs. Um, so, yeah, that's what we're going to get into. And I'm starting out with something that sounds bad, and it could be, but it's not like bad. So, this is called Yellowstone's Zone of Death. A legal loophole makes it possible to get away with murder within this 50-square-mile section of Yellowstone. So there's a 50-square-mile section of Yellowstone um, that spills over Idaho's border into a, basically like a no-man's land. It's an isolated spot that like doesn't have many people, um, if any, living there. And it's also missing le- legislation to prevent people from being charged with serious crimes. So how does that work? Good question. Um, There's a loophole that has to do with the Sixth Amendment, which dictates that a jury must be comprised of people from the state and federal district where the crime was committed. Because this portion of Yellowstone is in Idaho and the park itself lies within the jurisdiction of Wyoming, it means a jury for a crime committed there would have to come from people who both live in Idaho and fall under Wyoming's federal jurisdiction. Yeah, that's that's government for you. <laughs> um, it would pretty much be impossible to form a jury. Um, as this uninhabited part of the park is only le- is the only place to fit this criteria. And Yellowstone is a federal, obviously a national park. It's federal land, and the individual states involved have no legal jurisdiction to amend the issue. So, that sounds uh, like a loophole to me. Um, this article from Atlas Obscura um, quotes from a law professor, uh, Brian Colt, a law professor from Michigan State University. He brought the loophole into the spotlight in 2005 in a paper he published in the Georgetown Law Journal. and he outlined the legal technicalities that um, of this kind of loophole. And he sent copies, apparently, to various government authorities and hoping someone would, like, figure it out and, I don't know, either cut, I don't know, maybe cut that part of the park out or something like that. But nothing happened. Um, I guess it made some headlines, but nothing happened on the federal level. Um, And I guess uh, this, like, zone of death um, inspired... uh, A 2008 novel called Free Fire by C.J. Box. And later, a 2016 horror film called Population Zero. Uh, The name sounds familiar, that horror film, but I can't put a... I haven't looked it up. So, yeah. I mean... I bet it's beautiful. It'd be unfortunate if someone committed murder in such a beautiful spot. But... Kind of a weird like little uh little technicality there, so yeah, um, if you're looking for the zone of death, there it is okay, moving on yeah, so there's a lot of like weird stuff in Wyoming it's just like some weird like um I'm only gonna go into a few, but there's a Idaho potato museum in Blackfoot Idaho classic um there is. Ernest Hemingway's grave, which I think is pretty cool, um, huge fan, huge fan of his work, um, but yeah, there's, like, there's a ton of ghost towns, um, I'll actually go into this one right now, this I, this I find really interesting, um, so there's a region of Spain, um, well, actually, let me start this way, there's a small section of of Boise, Idaho, um, that maintains um, a unique culture and traditions of the Basque people. So the Basque people are, or I should say the Basque have inhabited the area surrounding the Bay of Biscay in southwestern France and northern Spain for up to 7,000 years. So the Basque are an interesting, um, sort of genetic and cultural anomaly in Europe. They speak a language that, um, is unrelated to any other known tongue on earth. And, um, they have distinctive genetic traits that have been traced back to pre-agricultural Iberia. So Iberia is that Spanish peninsula, um, yeah, and they've uh, the Basque have always been kind of mysterious um, to, to linguists and anthropologists. Um, some some em- immigrated um, into Latin America in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, those individuals, it seems, um, have lost kind of the tongue um, and kind of uh, melded into the melting pot that is the new world, was the new world, if you will. Um, but this unique part of Boise maintains, um, the, a lot of the Basque architecture, traditions, um, food, all that. And it's interesting because that area of the West, um, is where a lot of Basque, um, individuals that came over here, uh, that's a lot, that's where they settled is, um, primarily in Idaho, Nevada, Montana, and California. Um, livestock is the industry that they got in, um, ranchers and herders. Um, and there's a lot of Bosque cultural festivals that go on in the West. So I think that's a that's very cool. Uh, but I guess I would imagine the, um, the terrain of... Southwestern, or, yeah, was it Southwestern France? Southwestern France and northern Spain um, is similar to that of some of the western uh, geography. So I guess it does make sense that they uh, na- they naturally found that kind of... Uh, or that they naturally went to that area of the U.S. And it's, um... And like I said, you can be more independent out there, so... Um, as the traditional Basque culture seems to keep to itself, I imagine a lot of the individuals that came over here probably thought they'd like to do the same thing, so they moved out west. Um, so yeah, this Basque block in Boise, there's a number of small cultural centers and businesses that maintain every aspect of Basque culture. Um, Basque culture is heavy into the culinary traditions. Um, they also have a very unique um, architectural um, plaster and wood frame architecture. Um, there's <laughs> there's the names of some of the buildings, uh, but if you've ever seen Basque names, they're extremely hard to pronounce if you don't know what you're looking at and i've never i'm familiar with what they look like um mainly from watching soccer and um some of the players that come out of that region their names are always uh they always stand out but as far as pronouncing i'm not going to try and pronounce any of these i will link to this article uh, from alice obscura and if you're so interested. Um, I will be when I go out there to see my boy. um, You can look at uh, some of these places, so. Um, But yeah, there's bars. um, Food joints. uh, Museums. um, Displaying a comprehensive history of the Basque homeland and diaspora. So... Sure, there's some really good music, music, dance, food, drinks, all that. So, if you're in that area, it sounds like a good place to, good place to go see. So, check that out. Okay, moving on. Oh, there is a. I'm not gonna go into it, but there's apparently a, a treaty that was written into the side of a, of a rock. It's called Treaty Rock. It's in Post Falls, Idaho. Wild West Land Agreement was etched right onto the historic Idaho stone. I feel like there's not much to that, but okay, this is uh, this is an interesting one. This is called Dugout Dick Memorial, an Idaho legend carved out a cave village with his own two hands. So this is about a man who in 1948, after more than a decade on the road and riding rails, the article says, Richard Zimmerman got an idea. So his, um, this little village that he built with his own hands sits on the banks of Idaho's Salmon River, um... So, yeah, he figured it was time to settle down, so he just decided to do it all himself. At the age of 32, he built this um, cave into the side of a hill. And it soon... um, Well, he soon became named... He he soon became named uh, Dugout Dick. And he... um, he lived there his whole life. Um, he outfitted the cave with, uh, with scraps and cast-offs. Um, cast Not sure what they mean by that. Then he, um, he just kept, kept building. Um, he died in 2010. Um, he carved the entire village um, with his hands. He would rent out some of the rooms. Uh, apparently to campers and sojourners and kind of like people that just wanted to like live off the grid and hang out. Um, so it was never really his land. I mean, you can imagine when he started building the, um, the, the village, it, it didn't matter cause there probably were not a ton of people out there, but so he was never deeded the land. He was. The article states that he was pretty much a squatter. Um, however, local authorities and uh, Bureau of Land Management, they understood kind of the background of this place and the history of kind of the wanderers and settlers in Idaho, and they granted him lifetime rights um, with the understanding that the land would be reclaimed after he passed away. So the man lived till 94. So cheers to him. Cheers to him! I imagine that was a life of hard labor, and having a grandfather that did—that uh, is ninety 95, 96, ninety six—that did hard labor. Uh, I feel like that sounds bad. Not hard labor. He worked. He worked in a factory his whole life. Um, but having a having a grandfather that generation that just really manually worked really hard, uh, I appreciate, I appreciate the, the hard work, um, of that generation for sure. So after Dugout died, uh, BLM, Bureau Land Management came in, um, uh, unfortunately they destroyed the, the stuff that he'd built, citing health and safety concerns, um, I think that's kind of bullshit to be honest, uh, they just probably didn't want that just hanging out there, I don't, I mean, what? Someone going to visit it, and I don't know. Maybe something falls on it. I guess falls on a uh, person, and then it's their problem. But I don't know. I think that's kind of bullshit. Just, just let it hang out, um, or keep it up. Honestly, I feel like, I feel like they could have done. I feel like they could have done something better, but um, so newspaper publisher. Uh, enlisted all the support he could to create a memorial there. Um, After the bulldozing, there was one small cabin left behind, and with the help of local high school kids and the BLM, a small memorial was added in front of the cabin with signs celebrating his life and his creation there. Um, Currently... Uh, There's little sign of the former village, um, but apparently there's an old wooden bridge and a dirt road to the former site, and you can find the memorial, the old cabin, and the story of the Idaho legend. So, cool story there. And we continue. Okay, um, as I'm scrolling through, there's a potato hotel. Um, You can sleep in a giant potato I mean, if you're into that kind of stuff, I don't know I, I i prefer to like eat them um but I guess sleeping in it would be kind of cool <laughs> um, there's the largest outdoor art gallery in the northwestern United States. It's called Freak Alley in Boise. It looks pretty awesome. um, it's like a bunch of uh art painted on buildings, yeah just kind of walk through it it looks like uh, okay here is what I was looking for. <clears throat> so this is interesting, uh, especially to me I love um, <clears throat> I love learning about the native cultures um, that originally settled the continent. And a lot of their uh, history and folklore, it's one of the things I like to do in my spare time. <clears throat> um, I've been out to um, Pine Ridge Indian Reservation two times and have really loved it there. Um, really enjoy the people I've met there. Um, it's a different way of life. Um, it is very poverty stricken, unfortunately, and that's a sad part. But that's a whole that's a, that's a whole issue that um, that I've addressed, I believe, on here before. Um, but setting that aside for the moment, um, a lot of the culture and history I have, um, I appreciate. I've done a sweat lodge out there, which was an incredible experience. Um, I've seen part of a Sundance. Which uh, not many outsiders get to see, but um, my teacher in high school had uh, had, had been um, out to the reservation many times and had developed very 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 close relationships with some of the um, some of the elders out there, and we were able to do that. So um, that was that was very very insightful and fun to experience as a, as a, as a watcher, participating is a whole, uh, a whole other thing that, <laughs> that takes extreme dedication and, um, mental and physical fortitude, and I would never be able to do, um, even if I was allowed, so, but anyway, Continuing on this, um, this is called the heart of the monster, and this is the land. This landmark is a central figure in the Nez Pierce uh, origin story. So, in the Nez Pierce origin story, uh, Coyote appears in many of uh, the the tellings, and so in the story, uh, in the origin story, Coyote confronts a monster who is eating all of the people and animals. Uh, He tricks the monster into swallowing him. Once inside the monster, Coyote uses a stone knife to cut it open and free all the people and animals trapped within. Parts of the monster were then distributed all across the land, thus creating the many peoples of the land. Different parts of the monster are visible today across the landscape, and this is... Um... This... uh, I should say this... Uh... Little, what's well not little? It's this geological feature that sticks out of the ground, and this is the heart of the monster. So, the article states when visiting the heart of the monster, now one of thirty-eight sites within the Nez Pierce Historical, sorry, the Nez Pierce National Historical Park, you'll have the opportunity to see the landmark lodged within beautiful Clearwater River Valley in the town of, I think it's pronounced Kamiya, K a m i a h, Kamaya maybe. Um, there you can hear the origin story spoken via audio machines, and and yeah, that's uh, it's just it's part of the uh, part of the origin story there, and they've <clears throat> they yeah they have some signs explaining. It looks amazing. It looks beautiful. I might have to do that. That's very cool. Yeah, I think I'll, when I go when I go out there, I'm definitely going to see this. Um, and yeah, it's... I wonder how far apart some of the... Uh, some of the parts of the monster are. I wonder if any of them are... It says now one of 38 sites. I wonder if there are other parts of the monster spread out. I'll have to check that out. So yeah if you're into um, well it's gorgeous anyway uh, the area where it's located and if you're into kind of the native folklore and all that this this is definitely a spot to check out and it is in uh, yeah' like I said Kamaya see so, yeah, there you go okay moving on um, let's see here last page. Uh, Boise, Idaho Smurf Turf. If you're a football fan, you gotta recognize the Smurf Turf. Um, Boise State's uh, <laughs> Boise State's Blue Field, um, which I've always wanted to see. I imagine, I imagine we'll go do that when I'm out there. Um. Okay, so the last Idaho landmark that we're going to talk about today is the Oasis Bordello Museum. This is a formal a former brothel that operated until 1988 in Wallace, Idaho. And it was one of the top businesses in the town and even donated to, um, or some of the brothels, um, even donated to local schools and police departments. Um, At the Oasis, the Madame even bought the local school's marching band uniforms. So... So because the town was so successful from the mining and prostitution, sometimes the police would turn an eye to its work, and it said that the Oasis had five girls that worked 16-hour days and resulted in an estimated profits of $1 million per year the Oasis Bordello produced. Um, Unfortunately, an FBI raid of the town shut down the brothels, well, fortunately or unfortunately, um and that was in January of 1988 and it said that Madame Ginger received a tip about the raid and she immediately uh she immediately left with her uh girls and they headed out It was believed that Madame Ginger would reopen the brothel once things calmed down but the FBI stuck around for a while and they investigated the sheriff he was charged with using his office and seven deputies to protect the prostitution ring. I can't help but feel... Someone has to make a movie about this, right? Like, this, this sounds like a great movie. In the West, a brothel, but like modern times, but like still trying to live in the past, it kind of sounds like. I feel like this has to be a movie. Not that it, it, it happened, but like someone has to make it a movie. Um, he was acquitted of all charges due to the lack of witnesses. Um, there were rumors that the brothels continued to operate after the FBI raid Um, the town remained locked up until 1993 Uh, it was sold Um, and the new owner I guess left everything as it was Um, and it's just hanging out there are tours given Um, so yeah that sounds kinda of fun. I bet that I bet the town's pretty cool too, Wallace. I haven't looked up. Yeah, it looks it looks pretty cool. But damn, 1988. That's kind of crazy. That's crazy to me. But um anyway. Fun stuff there. Uh some cool stuff to see out there. And this last article I want to end with um, just concerns like how old um, the West like really is. So this is about um, some artifacts found in Idaho that um, predate some of the earliest known humans in America. And this is from Mysterious Universe and it was written on September 7th. So, fairly recently. Um... So stone tools and animal bone fragments were found in Idaho and they've been dated to 16,600 years ago. So this is more than 1,000 years before the Clovis people were thought to be the earliest settlers. And what's even more interesting is that the artifacts match those found in Northern Japan. So, the discovery is described in detail in a paper in... Excuse me. Um, in a paper co-authored by Oregon State um, University professor Lauren Davis and summarized in Sci News with photos of the site and artifacts. So Davis had been conducting um, excav- excavations at this area known as Cooper's Ferry in Idaho for 10 years. Um, Cooper's Ferry is it's at a bend in the Salmon River. Um, this river is also known as the River of No Return. And it's fed by the Snake River, which is a main tributary of the Columbia River, whose mouth is the Pacific Ocean. Um So that's an interesting side note, especially if you see a map. Um, let me explain that for a second. So the Salmon River, um, the Salmon River juts out from basically the border of Oregon and Idaho. So the Columbia River, the Columbia River comes out. Um, it's just say it comes inland from the Pacific, and the Snake River kind of juts north a little bit, and then comes back down, and then the Salmon River comes into Ma- into uh, Idaho, and just keeps on, just kind of like winding through, and that's where that's where these are found. So in addition to 189 stone artifacts, um, tools, projectile, points, blades, Davis and his team found charcoal and 86 large animal bone fragments. The age of the tools predates Clovis culture, as I previously stated. um, Long thought to be the first human settlers in the Americas. Uh, The Clovis culture, that is. And uh, the points on the tools uh, looked different than Clovis tools. And Davis, obviously being well-versed in archaeology and whatnot, recognized that. Um, And a quote here, The oldest artifacts uncovered at Cooper's Ferry are also very similar in form to older artifacts found in northeastern Asia, and particularly Japan. So this is where, I guess, the river comes in. Um, a possibility that people from the northern Pacific islands might have arrived by boat, um... Yeah, and basically the question is uh, stated: Is it possible that these Pacific Asians followed these rivers um, to Cooper's Ferry and just decided to not go any farther and, like dump some stuff off and maybe they maybe they hung out there for a little bit? Who knows? But it's yeah, that possibility is pretty wild. Um, I I think it's plausible. Um, I think, I should say, I think it's possible, well, anything's possible, but, um, if you, if you, if you believe that these, uh, native, or these, what's the term, these, uh, older cultures had the ability to be seafaring and whatnot, then, yeah, I mean, that's definitely, definitely possible, um, But there's no proof, uh, genetically, I guess, that um, that these that there was a that there was a trip made. Um, the article says while there could have been an extinct group that made the trip, that's hypothetical at the moment. Davis and his team are hoping to do genetic comparisons between Cooper's fairy bones and those found in other sites in Chile, Texas, and Oregon. So. I think I've stated this on the podcast before. It's a long process to finally get these results, um, and it's really interesting stuff. But it, yeah, it's a long process. Uh, I imagine lots of time, effort, money is all um, part of the part of the deal that allows these archaeologists to do their job and find these. Uh, Find these spots, just kind of waiting out there. Honestly, that's what it is. Is I feel like it's just like these spots are out there, and we're just waiting to discover these. And recently, though, it's been happening a lot um, lately. People have been, I shouldn't say people, professional archaeologists, anthropologists, and whatnot have been discovering um, sites that keep pushing back like the record of of uh, of human uh, existence. So. Very cool stuff there, Um, but again, there's a lot more to be done, Um, and yeah, I'll try to keep an eye out for the story. Very interesting stuff. Okay, well, that wraps it up. Um, I was out late last night, so I'm a little little sleepy. Um, My voice is getting tired as well, but if I don't talk to you guys before Halloween, happy Halloween. Hope you're watching some scary movies. Drinking some pumpkin spice lattes and eating some pumpkin bread. Ooh, that sounds really good. That sounds really good. Um, and yeah, we're out. I am probably going to p- keep doing these by myself, so hopefully you like my voice. <laughs> but anyway, you can find us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I should say, uh, World We Live In Podcast. You can email us at worldweliveinpodcast at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at pod. and I'm also on Parreality Radio once a month with Sandman, that is Parreality Radio, um, just search that in Google and it'll come up. Um, you can also find him on Stitcher, Google Play, not sure if he's on Apple yet. But, yeah, he did some good stuff, and um, hopefully get back on there this month. And, yeah, we'll keep going. Um, Hope everyone's doing well. Stay safe out there, and we'll talk to you later.